Welcome. I am your host, Leto Armitage. Please take the large red couch and help yourself to the tea on the side table. It is Tuesday, October the 17th, 2023, and this is Season 1, Episode 3 of The Snuggery, our halfway mark for this season. And I must apologize, since we are a day tardy due to recording issues, so I have also made some fresh Madelines for you. Today, I will look at two very different films, though both with established leads. The first is Embrace of the Vampire, released 28 years ago in 1995, and watching it immediately made me think of Brandon Lee's The Crow, which was more stylish, though I will concede that it likely had a much larger budget as well, and was released only a year before. And if you were not yet culturally aware in the 90s, say to being in a coma or born later, let me say that this film exposes many of the decade's stylistic sins, though they at least did not indulge in coding every man in flannel to invoke the age of grunge, which was ending by now. It was directed by Anne Gorsod, who is primarily a film editor, but did work on Bram Stoker's Dracula for Francis Ford Coppola three years earlier, which we covered in the first week of the series. One of the producers of the film, a company called Ministry of Film, was better known as a producer of softcore erotica, which explains many of the choices made here. The film was also shot in less than two weeks. So if you were to watch this and find yourself saying to yourself, was this really the best take of this scene that they had? The answer is that it is most likely the only take they had. I watched this for you, dear friends. It is supposed to be erotic. Many lists that I consulted said it was erotic. It was... something. Let us get one thing out of the way. I am going to mock this film. But despite this, I still believe it earns a place on our list. Perhaps played in the background on a large screen television with the sound off. The symbolism is heavy-handed. Sanity and madness, light and dark, dreaming and waking. And the less said of it in the plot, the better. It was like watching a treatise on good and evil written by a teenage boy with access to the poetry of the romantics, but no life experience. Let us begin with the lazily unnamed vampire played by Gary Kemp, member of the band Spandu Ballet, and periodic British actor, probably best known for his role on EastEnders, one of a trinity of shows so quintessentially British, long-running and cast-churning, that you aren't allowed to call yourself an actor in the aisles unless you've had some role on them, the other two being Silent Witness and Midsummer Murders, my favorite of the three. Amusingly, the connection to Bram Stoker's Dracula does not end with the director's employment history. Sadie Frost, who played Lucy Westerna from Bram Stoker's Dracula, was Kemp's sister-in-law at the time of the making of this film. I would have very much enjoyed being around for a family gathering and heard a comparison of their experiences. Kemp plays a nobleman from some unnamed time when noblemen dressed like Fabio from countless 90s romance novel covers, but without the sculpted body. 
or good hair. One day he is resting by a pool, his shirt split to bare his chest, and three maidens, evocative of the brides of Dracula, feast upon him in a scene that should have been sanguinely sensual, but instead was basic and bloody. Three topless women licking blood and suckling on a man should not be, well, so bloodless if you take my meaning. They lay an onk on him that apparently turns him into a vampire and continues to drive events in poorly defined ways not worth thinking about too hard. It was the 90s, and once Neil Gaiman's death featured an onk necklace, the fashion accessory became ubiquitous. As the movie opens, another parallel to Dracula rears its head, the resurrected lost love from the vampire's mortal life. Kemp's character says of Charlotte, In three days I will fall into eternal sleep. Only she can save me, my virgin, my elixir. He proceeds with a plan to break her up with her boyfriend and make her love him, at which time he can turn her and save himself. Homage or lazy writing? You decide. Charlotte is played by the delectable Alyssa Milano, who shot this between her stints on the dreadful TV sitcom, Who's the Boss? I know that it was not bad for a sitcom, but I think the format itself is appalling. And then Charmed, roughly This would have been roughly during the time she might have been on Melrose Place, but with only a 13-day shooting schedule, this was less a major project to fit inside her time than a repurposed holiday. We learn that Charlotte was raised in a monastery and has a boyfriend of 14 months who is storing enough backload for the good girl that I'm surprised he doesn't have chaps with boxers on to give the boys a bit of space to expand. You know what I mean? Now, confusingly, Charlotte's friend Nicole keeps saying that this is also new for Charlotte, and she needs to adjust. But if she has been dating the boy toy for 14 months, more than enough for the newness to wear off, I would think. That does not make sense. However, she does have a box of pearl necklaces, which were perhaps meant to evoke a conservative image of womanhood, a la American television of the 1950s. But it simply left me giggling with an idea in my mind of how the boyfriend perhaps keeps his swamp drained. Milano has copious nude scenes and has a wonderful body, but her character's three days short of her 18th birthday, landing this somewhere in the realm of perhaps being illegal in some places that do not allow representations of underage characters and sexual circumstances, regardless of the age of the performers. However, no one watching this would mistake Milano for a child, unless children get boob jobs now. Milano was 23 years old when the film was made, and while in that stage of their lives, breasts can seem to be almost magically perky, these were clearly artificial due to both shape and absolute refusal to recognize any effect of gravity upon them. And thank goodness, we do get many opportunities to analyze their shape by sight. If you watch this, let me know if you think Milano's breasts are fake or real. Also, if you are a fan of Charmed and fan fiction and you have not seen this, I am sure you will rectify that soon. If only to give your fan fictions a little more, 
shall we say, vitae. The movie doesn't have a lot going for it, but Milano is good in it, even if most of the film portrays her either completely nude or in clothing that would give Tom Ford or Donatella Versace eye twitches. Meanwhile, Gary Kemp is dressed in a look that can best be described as a poor man's Lestat that got lost looking for the gay biker club. Meanwhile, the film absolutely wastes Rachel True as Charlotte's friend Nicole. The African-American actress is gorgeous and lands solid, decent acting, even when opposite the comically villainous bad girl antagonist. Her death has little narrative function, and a scene with a woman bound up in rope netting could have been gloriously perverse, but instead was committed to film awkwardly, as if Kemp was looking for direction on how to shoot the scene and looked up only to find everybody except the camera operator already gone. Charlotte meets a female photographer who does nude work. This is as Charlotte is beginning to be seduced to the dark side. Much to my surprise, they had some actual chemistry, or at least convinces the viewer of it. Charlotte learns to feel sexy and beautiful, transitioning from photography to light touching to a moment of release as real as any orgasm when the photographer finally leans in to touch without pretense, her tongue entering the valley between Charlotte's breasts. For several minutes, the sexiest scene of the movie progresses before plot nonsense has the virgin run out embarrassed. All I'm saying, my good friends, is that this was a moment for a script rewrite. Three more scenes stand out as the erotic beats of the plot. First in a dream sequence, Charlotte is chained to a bed, spread eagled as a man and woman pleasure her with their mouths. When the vampire merges between her legs, it almost works as erotic. Certainly, the scene with Milano's body is enjoyable to watch, but they would have been better off letting the three pleasure her and build up the idea of her addiction to the sensual experiences. This is followed by an orgy, a sexual orgy. The couples were largely real couples and are enjoying themselves. It should have worked. Certainly, when you zoom in on them, it works, but the directing had all the passion of a multi-level marketing meeting for timeshares. As the movie progresses, Milano does a good job of becoming the transformed wanton seductress. When the mean girl is killed on the other side of her dorm door, Charlotte listens to the murder. She leans into the door as if she is being licked by the vampire who is licking the murdered woman's blood off the door. It has all the setup, but doesn't quite work. Though, I will admit it left me inspired for a scene that may make its way into a future story. All of this heads towards the climax of the film. And thank goodness, because no one ever gets to climax in it. The boyfriend interrupts the vampires feeding on Charlotte, apparently determined that if he is going to have balls so blue that they could serve as a color reference for garden sheds, he is going to cock-block the vampire too. And then the movie ends. The vampire lays down, puts his arm into a style known from the classic film Nosferatu, and the mortals kiss and it is over. Our next film is Only Lovers Left Alive. It was released in 2013, and I came into this with higher hopes than Embrace of the Vampire, and it did not disappoint. 
I will not bother with dissecting the careers of Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston, both of whom are well-known thespians. I was slightly concerned about the director, though. The director and writer, Jim Jarmusch, also created 2019's low-key zombie film The Dead Don't Die, a quirky and fourth-wall-breaking film also with Tilda Swinton. While I enjoyed the movie, I wasn't in the mood for that style from a vampire film. Instead, I got a vampire film that never uses the term vampire. The beginning does not open optimistically, with a dull red font reminiscent of bad horror movies where Dracula speaks with a ham-handed Bela Lugosi accent. That is misdirection and perhaps homage. My anticipation changed to excitement quickly as a record spins on screen and a lazy, hard beat starts. The film delivers pure sensuality, and I am not talking carnal sensuality for once. I applaud the craft of this film, not just the writing and acting, but direction, cinematography, costuming, sound. All were absolutely brilliant. They did not create a film. They created a universe perhaps sparse in history, but rich in sensation. This film is about love, and you may think this debauched old writer jeers at love, but I do not. Love and sex are not the same, but love is very real and powerful, and it binds Adam, played by Hiddleston, and Eve, played by Swinton. The film begins with them living a world apart, but she senses something wrong, calls him, and then flies to him in Detroit, where he watches a city dying while he lives in a mad scientist's nest of jury-rigged technology melding a century of disparate hardware. The home is a world of textures and colors, of sound and energy as he composes and creates. Meanwhile, Eve lives in a home as eclectic but somehow more sterile, a home-turned-archive of literature of every human language. They are libertines, rejecting any mortal idea of normalcy to explore themselves. They call mortals zombies, creatures seemingly unaware of beauty, the tides of time, or what is obvious to the lovers. Eve speaks to when Detroit will rise again, when the heat comes and the south is hotter and they will need the water. This is said as they drive through the dark of Detroit, beguiling in its history, and they watch its rotting corpse in a way that at first seems detached, but they aren't. Like Eve's premonition of the future, they simply have a different perspective. There is physical sensuality, though. When Adam takes Eve's hand and presses it to his cheek, it is more sensual than any penetration and thrusting into a woman's sex could be in the film. Now, I will admit that at the 45-minute mark into the film, I had a nearly overwhelming impulse to stop the film. It was perfect. It was 45 minutes of perfect film. And while the movie is beautiful, it is not perfect as a whole. The plot really does not matter much, and the end rushes at us. Which it has in common with the other Jim Jarmusch work I've seen, The Dead Don't Die. 
Adam has to leave his life behind, and while they sit, perhaps dying together in Tangiers, they still find beauty. And an ending that in its final seconds was probably not needed, but does push the film back into the category of horror. But I think I would like to ignore that final moment and set the ending as the moment when Adam lays back with Eve against the arabesque crumbling wall and plucks the string of the lute, the hovering reverberation mirroring the guitar chords of Adam's music. Well, that is enough for today. I hope you will await the next podcast when I return with the dark and the well-lit. If you can guess which films I might be referring to, please feel free to find me on social media. Everything is in the show notes. And let me know what you think. So until we meet again, I'm Leto Armitage, reminding you to have a good time and don't do anything I wouldn't do, nor indeed many that I would. Goodbye.